0: Paul Singer, John Paulson, Michael Price, and many more are part of a compilation of interviews in the new book by Kate Welling and Mario Gabelli called Merger Masters. I had the opportunity to interview the author for According to Sources for the week of November 4th, 2018. It's crossing the tape right now. Let me explain what's happening here. Breaking news to share with you this morning. M&A related. There's good activism. I think eBay is in that situation. They got a jewel in PayPal. There's bad activism. Unfortunately, JCPenney was a dying company. Examples of activism gone awry. It was not a surprise to me that that deal fell through. This is such a game changer. Hello and welcome to According to Sources for the week of November 4th, 2018. I'm Mike Samuels, founder and portfolio manager of Broom Street Capital. This is a podcast devoted to merger ARB, deals, activism, and event trading, all of which are the focus of Kate Welling's new book, Merger Masters, We sat down to discuss it on October 29th. Getting right to the book. So the book's called Merger Masters, and it's essentially a a compilation of interviews that you conducted with these famous, well-known merger arbitrage managers. Um, I guess two parts to start. What made you want to do this? And then um, how did you go about gathering these people?
1: Uh, Well, that's an easy two-part answer and both parts are Mario Gabelli. Uh, The book really is Mario's inspiration. He really wanted to have it uh, written. Um, He had the idea of interviewing um, a group of, of very successful risk arbitrageurs other than himself, Mm. Um, and combining that with the uh, three interviews that we ended up doing with some very successful industrialists who've had experiences in the merger business one way or another. And Mario sent out uh, the initial letters to uh, a long list of people. We came up with a list of people that would be good right together he sent out the letters and did the arm twisting which he's very good at (laughs)
0: and he he wrote the forward to the book
1: uh yeah it looks like that yeah okay (laughs) uh uh he talked it got it got it that was another interview well if uh
0: like i was saying if you love if you're if you love war stories about deals gone wrong or deals gone right And which I do. Or I mean, if you just want to hear really smart people opine on their long experience in the business, it's great. It's great. I I read. I'm not sure how you I've never written a book, but if I had, I would think about I wonder how people read it. Mm -hmm. You know, so I read it over the course of four airplane flights. And so and that was a good way to do it. It's a lot to take in all at once. You kind of want to do it in, in piecemeal.
1: Yeah, I would be surprised if anybody sat down and read it cover to uh, cover, especially because they're all, there's all that deal data at the back.
0: Right. Well, I want to talk about that, too. But I guess uh, a good place to start, I'm going to I'm gonna kind of throw it back on you. There, you know, there's you interview so many people, John Paulson, uh, Martin Gruss. I, by the way, am I pronouncing it, is it Gruss or Gruss?
1: He says Gruss.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, I know you don't I know you don't want to say who is the favorite but who who would you say was would be the uh, who would you say you would point a, a reader to to say hey you've got to read this chapter it's you know, it's really interesting
1: uh, that's really like asking me to choose among my children um, but uh, there there are a couple uh, maybe some that you wouldn't expect John Paulson's is interesting because even as someone who lived moment by moment through the financial crisis, for example, and had done lots of stories in advance of that about the uh, CDO market and the mortgage market and, and various vulnerabilities. Um, amid everything that was going on, the story he told tells in the book about rescuing the Dow Chemical-Roman Haas yeah. deal. Yeah. I must have noticed it at the time, but it really didn't register. And hearing him talk about how he pulled that off and why he had to pull it off uh, was really fascinating to me.
0: It was, and I was thinking of, you know, when I'm reading that part, I'm thinking... um... You know, everyone's getting buried at this point, right? It's like the financial crisis is in full swing. Dow Chemical uh, disrupts the deal between BASF and Roman Haas.
1: In June, before things really got nasty.
0: Right. And, they, and, and Roman Haas essentially was like, we'll, we'll go with you, we'll sign with you, but we need this ironclad agreement if we're going to do that. Right. And they signed a deal for 82, and then I, I think it's, you know, when, when things really hit the fan, Roman Haas is trading 30 and Dow's rating six.
1: Yeah. It's just... Just nuts. The spread blew out to an an exceedingly crazy level because it didn't look like uh, Dow had the money. Also, Dow had been planning to use the uh, proceeds from an asset sale to, I think it was the Kuwaitis, one of the uh, Arab. And they backed out. And they backed out in the middle of the. Financial crisis. So then, even though they had backup lines of credit from the banks, the banks were not eager, to say the least, to part with the uh, uh, with the money uh, to to do the loans. Right. And uh, basically, it came out really through Paulson that the banks told Dow that they had to raise something like one and a half billion in equity before they'd give them the loans that they would promised to give them. Right. And nobody could raise any equity at that point.
0: And it, it, what's great about that story, and I, I love that story too, it becomes this race against time because right. Dow, I, I believe that the only thing that will derail this merger in, legally is if they lose their investment grade rating. And so Paulson has to make sure they keep their rating so that they're bound to the Roman Haas deal. Right. So there's a few dominoes that have to fall here. Yeah. And so he, and, but, but also the Rome or the Roman house, I forget which side, the family Family. needed to be appeased as well. Right. So they needed to take a little bit less. And the only way, I was thinking, only he could have done this because he was the only one making money right now.
1: He was the only one who was liquid to that extent at that point in the crisis. It was incredible. As he says, he was the only one who could have done it. And uh, they they did it in a a matter of weeks, ultimately. Um, And he closed out of it within a couple months. Uh, with just an incredible profit. (laughs) Amazing.
0: You know, he, uh, you know, I feel like sometimes he gets a a rep as sort of a one-hit wonder. Right. You know, that he kind of got lucky in this amazing trade and that that's his his career and he's never been the same since. Um, You met him. Right. Um, I'm not saying, would you have, simple question, would you have interviewed him? Do you think he would be
1: well-known? Would he be, an interview if that event hadn't happened um he would have been eligible for inclusion in this book even if that deal hadn't happened on the basis of how active he's been over the years and successful as a risk arb. right right uh, so yes so yes but obviously the fact that he did the uh, famous uh, trade adds to the uh,
0: one thing I really liked that he talked about from his chapter was, uh, you know, we just saw AT&T and Time Warner go to court against the U.S. government, right. and they won. And he basically said, you know, he got hit pretty hard when Ab v. Shire right. fell apart, and then he went back for seconds in pfizer Allergan, and that fell apart too. And he, he said something to the degree of— um, he spoke to Ian Reed and he spoke to Brett Saunders and they both felt like that if they went to court against the government that they would have won, but, but they didn't do it. But do you think today, I wonder, today in the environment we have now, would they have done it? We just saw someone do it.
1: We just saw somebody do it and succeed. Right. Uh, so maybe that changes everyone's calculus a little bit, but it's also a question of timing. Where are you in an economic cycle? how long are your lawyers taking you, that legal step might take. And I think in in those drug situations, the lawsuits wouldn't have been as clear
0: cut. Right. And they also said that to do it, they would have had to close the deal, then go to court. And then if it didn't work, unwind the deal, and it would have been super complicated. Would have been a nightmare. A nightmare. Yeah. And he also, he talked about staples office depot another deal he was very candid about the deals that went wrong for him which is great and he talked about how he really thought that was unfair that they were using antitrust um as a, very selectively very as selectively he used the example of their saying well the majority of i think he used uh ink toners yeah. get bought between those two but he was they weren't looking at any of the other products right and it was totally unfair and You know, the book is so quotable, and so I'm going to remember quotes, sometimes more than who said them, but there was someone in the book that said something along the lines of, uh, I don't want to get into situations where there's one kingmaker. Uh, Yeah. Um, Where there's one guy that's going to decide. decide. I think it was York.
1: Might have been York, or it might have been Carlson, but I I think maybe you're right, York. And and are meaning like he doesn't want to be his whole fate to be
0: decided by one judge,
1: one judge, one um, CEO. Mm-hmm. Somebody used the uh, example or a kind of a generic example. But if I find out that the deal is being done by a CEO who has most of the equity, the board is lined up behind him. The Uh, Lawyers uh, in the deal are not one of the uh, big firms, but Mm -hmm. they're a local firm. Yes. Buyer beware. Buyer beware. Right.
0: Yes. I'm going to stick with the Paulson theme because... I don't know if if you're a a sports fan but often in sports and particularly in football you see these sort of coaching family trees like you see that with bill belichick and 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 he had these assistant coaches and they went on to be amazing and so on and so forth and what's great about the book is you sort of see the merger arb family tree and all these guys seem to stem from a few guys a few guys yeah and paulson was no different because he worked for martin gruce right so he and
1: john bader both worked for martin gruce right
0: So maybe you could just talk about um, sort of who the founding fathers were a little bit and and who came down off
1: that tree. Well, if you look at it, uh, Paulson and and John Bader both worked for Marty Gruce. Schoenfeld had uh, a bunch of people working for him at various times. Uh, George... uh, A lot of people at DLJ. A lot of people at DLJ was spewing lots of people out. It seems when anybody, even um, like when Paulson wanted to go into the business um, when he first came to Wall Street, he was saying, he was told, as a lot of them were told, not so fast. First, you have to go get an MBA. Mm -hmm. Then uh, you you have to work in investment banking. And if you're good enough in investment banking and you catch some of the ARB's eyes, maybe they'll let you try out for the desk. Right. And that's really the process that just about everybody in the business went through on one level or another.
0: Yeah. Um, Except for uh, some of those founding guys where I noticed uh, there's a lot of family talk. There's a lot of family things. And there's a lot of father and son businesses.
1: A lot of father and son businesses. Guy Weiser Pratt has a son in the business now. His father founded the business that he yeah. um, went into, um, even though it was owned by probation at that point. Marty Gruse took over his father's business, which his father had pretty much abandoned, given his uh, interest in his oil uh, business right. uh, after the Arab oil embargo suddenly made it exceedingly. Why Why didn't
0: it, it's Guy Weiser Pratt... Why didn't Guy pratt grow assets to, you know, these astronomical levels that we see today?
1: I think it's partly how much you want to work at it, mm-hmm. what kind of deals you get fascinated in. Also, didn't want to raise a lot of other people's money. He very much likes calling the shots himself. Right doing it his way. And I think he probably lost in a deal or two at at crucial points in his career that made it somewhat harder. I mean, when he got caught in that um, prudential in the uh, 80s Mm -hmm. mess, uh, was a significant uh, kind of setback for him in terms of having to extricate himself and then reestablish the business.
0: Right. I was thinking about how it seems like every day on CNBC or these various news outlets you hear about algos and machines and trading and AI and and this particular niche of finance seems to be still human beings doing it. That someone called it, it's a judgment business. And there was... Again, I'm going to forget who. Someone went to go work for D.E. Shaw for a little bit. Right. And and, and they were quant-heavy, and they were trying to apply the principles of merger-arb into a quant-based model. That's Mike Shannon yes. at Westchester. Yes. Do you still think that's the case? Is this a human-being-driven business?
1: I think there is so much. Um, I think one of the things Jamie Dimon. Dinan said, it's a great business if you like uh, human uh, psychology, mm-hmm. or if, if you're fascinated by that. And it's true, and there are just a lot of um, judgment factors that somebody's going to have a really hard time putting into an algo um, to evaluate. Uh, you, could, you could put every le- legal case in, varying on merger ARBs, certainly, uh, and there are there's academic research showing something like if, if you invest in j- virtually every deal you're going to win in right. what, 95% of them yes. or something like that so it's a question of can you do that and keep your losses small enough to keep you in business and that tempts the uh, guys who are very quantitative Mm-hmm. but there're just so many human factors in the deal making process and deals can turn on matters entirely rational or entirely irrational right also i mean
0: no machine is going to do the the extra digging we'll say that some of these guys will do so, I mean, the uh, and some of these things you kind of just like shake your head and say, I can't believe only one person did that. The the story about, um, I believe it was like a rare earths company in Oregon, fan steel, and he calls up the guy in the yellow pages and he says, why is this guy doing this? And some random guy said, oh, they're doing that because the price has soared tenfold of the mineral in the last month. Right. And he was able to just kill it.
1: That was uh, Mike Price in, yes. a, in an early... Uh, Adventure in the uh, risk arb space, long before there was any uh, computer uh, or databases or anything like that, and where he literally went through the New York uh, phone book looking for people who dealt in the, that rare metal.
0: So let's talk about the UAL deal because it's it's, it's peppered Which one? throughout this whole, <laughs> right. Well, I meant the airline. Um, it's peppered throughout. It is this, a
1: kind of iconic uh, yeah.
0: lesson. I mean, it seems like each one of these deals that fall apart is like a, it's like a battle scar. And a lot of guys have this, this battle scar. Um, do you think... Is there anything comparable to UAL and that we've seen you know in the last 15 years?
1: In the last 15 years?
0: I mean, that deal got to the one-yard line and, and then, then fell apart.
1: Right. Um, well, the Shire Abbey V came pretty close but it didn't it, it wasn't also a market peaking event right ual calls a seven percent
0: market decline and i think they said in two hours right which
1: it, in those days was really something right N- nothing really did that um that that's probably the closest
0: shire Abbey. yeah
1: and that also i mean that had ripple
0: effects right. i remember you know Deals were busting at the seams that day. Uh, things were happening in the way that, let's say, NXPI Qualcomm that didn't have that effect. Maybe it, that was because I was a slow death. But
1: Yeah, uh, short-term capital, as I call it. Long-term capital was the other one. Right. Because they uh, had a very large book of risk deals. deals yeah. when that thing cracked um, that they were very leveraged on. And all the spreads blew out like crazy. So guys who saw what was happening and had cash could clean up Mm -hmm. at that point. And that one also was fairly market-shaking.
0: One thing that I really enjoyed is that you start each chapter with a quote from the fund manager. And my favorite chapter was the Paul Singer-Elliott chapter. Okay. And so I'm just going to read the quote. This was from Paul Singer. So he starts off and he says, There's a set of mind that is absolute that is an absolute requirement. If you're not a person whose starting point is, quote, what am I missing? rather than quote, how freaking great am I, you're missing something essential to survival. What am I missing is like oxygen. If you're asking how great am I, you're the you're the knight of the living dead. And I like that because well first of all I think he might just be he's one of the best he's yeah. he's, he's extraordinary the reason that i even started this podcast was because i was constantly feeling like what am i missing when, when anyone ever says to me well, why are you doing this it's because i'm trying to fill in the gaps okay you know and this from you know i have a small fund i work alone in, a, in an office in the west village uh it's different now and i'm i wanted to you know become sort of a hub and and start a conversation around things that weren't happening mm. um, and that's been happening the fact that you know you're here in my kitchen right now talking to me about this is an example of that and so he just uh he his ideals and w- the things he said I just found myself you know nodding my head and being like yes you know he's he's, he's spot on
1: and he is ruthless though oh absolutely his vibe is don't mess with me so when you, did just, you... Okay,
0: tell me about that interview. Did you go to his house? Did you go to his office? I went to his
1: office. Okay. Uh, his was one of the uh, very last ones we managed to schedule. What year... What was the year range on this uh, between all the whole book? Most of the interviews took place in 2016. Um, Paul Singer's took place in early 17. Okay. So you, it's it takes place in his office. Takes place in his office, but... Uh, I wasn't uh sure what I would find when I went up there a lot of these people I had met before mm. in in the course of my career doing the interviews i had never met Paul Singer he he was a very uh you know gracious host and uh welcomed me into uh his office we sat in his conference room turned on the recorder um I started uh I had a fairly organized set of questions that I tried to ask everyone just to, um, not to keep the interviews the same, but so that we covered basically the same ground, to give some cohesion or coherence to to the book. So I started um, asking those questions, and he was very valuable uh, about uh, how he, started in the business, and um, his early frustrations, and uh, listening to my old boss, Alan Abelson's advice at his column. Who and, was his and rabbi? He called him his rabbi, okay. yeah. Uh, and uh, I love the story about... Marty Zweig's uh, uh, errant forecasts of the... Uh, right. Early uh, 70s, right? Yeah, the era, around the year war oil embargo, basically. Right.
0: He gets so frustrated at one point that he offers to sell his barons back to the magazine.
1: He had been collecting barons from the time basically he started reading it. Um, His father got him into investing uh, when he started uh, going to Harvard for his graduate degree. He decided that he had to uh, start investing, but his father didn't know anything about investing. He didn't know anything about investing, and he says very uh, disarmingly that they made every mistake in the book. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, But he started reading Barron's at that point, so he got so frustrated when uh, Marty's advice didn't work out and the uh, market crack in 75, 76, whenever that was, took place that he called up Barron's and said, I've got at that point probably 10 years, or <laughs> the back issues, do you want them? And he couldn't get an answer out of whoever answered the phone, which is not surprising, knowing mm-hmm. what I know. But, uh, so he threw them down the incinerator in a fit of pique, and then he says about a week later, the woman called back and offered him something 200. ridiculous like 200 <laughs> bucks for his collection. What makes him so
0: incredible, I think, and Elliot so amazing, is... Um, just the access to information that seemingly no one else had. So, uh, Jamie Dinan mm-hmm. says at one point he goes, "The business has changed so much. Any kid with a Wi-Fi, with Wi-Fi, can get ninety-nine percent of the information I have." And I-, I thought, well, not if you're Paul Singer.
1: Well, I don't know. I think Paul Singer is much more shrewd about analyzing the data he gets and looking forward three or four chess moves to what he might push together or might come together or might generate some money than most people looking only at what's there today right he he puts a lot of imagination <laughs> into what he's doing and yes i mean he's got he's got quite a team he's got pretty much infinite resources right. to dig for information. And he, the, the and he's, he's ruthless made, about
0: it. And fearless, meaning there's no target too big. He's gone after uh, right. Argentina, a sovereign government, and then Samsung, which essentially was a government in itself. Probably when you interviewed him, he wasn't going through that incredible saga of NXPI and Qualcomm. No, not yet. That hadn't started yet. Which probably would have been a chapter in the book all to itself. All to
1: itself. That would have been, yeah. That would have been.
0: Did he? Did you talk about at all? I mean, he has a young protege. I don't even call him protege. uh, Jesse Cohn, who works there, and it really runs the show in terms of activism
1: in in tech. tech. Did you talk about him at all? We didn't talk about the other personalities. This was focused on just on Paul Singer. But uh, he talked a lot about. How he couldn't do what he did if he didn't have uh Jesse and didn't have other um,
0: staff he he's an activist, obviously one of the most well known now, and he's you know the the perception is that at least that I believe is that um you know the activist buys up the stake, he knocks on the door, and the management is scared and upset, and that they view it as disruptive. He said something in the book that was very different he said something uh he said yes. In the tech sector, Singer found himself knocking on an open door that they were, in fact, relieved to have him there. Is that? Do you believe that to be actually true,
1: or do you think that he thinks that's true? Well, he definitely right. thinks that's true. And in some situations um, that they had scoped out, once at least the knock came on the door, managements pretty quickly saw that their best route to... Uh, you know, living to fight kid another day right. uh, was to go along right. with, uh, with what Singer was proposing mm. and, and that deal. They, they, I can't cite them off the top of my head right now, but there were a string of tech deals. Mentor Graphics yeah. and BMC Software, there were several in a row.
0: Right. Um, but again, it, it was sort of contrary to popular belief that the activist is the bad guy and the companies are sort of uh, begging him to go away.
1: Everything depends on the situation. Right. I mean, and there's, there's nothing truer than that when you're talking about these,
0: these deals. And, and lastly, you know, in, at the end of the Paul Singer chapter, he talks about how they now have their own private equity division. And he said the quote was something along the lines of, you know, we, we wanted to participate. And he said, what are we, chop liver? Right, exactly. I love that quote. And now, given the opportunity with Athena Health, which he is in, he has the opportunity and seems to be backing away.
1: Yeah, I don't know, Um, you know, I haven't talked to him about Athena Health and uh, what's going on there, but he was very clear that he wasn't going to back away in the future Mm. uh, from those kind of uh, situations, that he wanted even more, you know, he he wants to control the situation, any situation he's in. I wanted to also ask you, you interviewed two women. Karen
0: Feinerman and Jamie Zimmerman from Lightspeed. And uh, well, first of all, why do you think there are so few women in the business in general?
1: Um, I asked just about everybody that, and I didn't really get an answer. Do you
0: think that, I mean, uh, Karen Feinerman talks a bit about the difference between how men pitch a stock and how women pitch a stock.
1: Yeah, that's and, a fairly good insight, I yeah, think.
0: Men pitch the upside and women pitch sort of the downside or what could go wrong and the and the PM in this case was saying well I don't want to know what's going to go wrong I don't want I want to know how much money I can make
1: which in the um, risk arb space is actually contrary to what was a theme that really everybody I talked to stressed these guys are different and and the women they don't look first at how much I can make in a deal they look at how much they can lose. Mm-hmm. Only when they've got a good grasp of what the downside is do they look at whether they want to get involved on on the upside. Right. And it's, it's a, an inversion um, of the common investor approach to, to just about
0: anything. Well, right. I remember, uh, so my first job out of school, uh, I worked at a trading shop called First New York Securities, where they give you a pad and you're, you're, you're on your way. There was probably at the peak um, 240 traders at the most, you know? Um, and I would say 239 of them were men. And at and one time I asked my boss, why are there only men here? Mm-hmm. And he uh, he was very old school, very old school Wall Street. And he said, Michael, um, women have a different risk tolerance than men.
1: Ah, uh, I don't know i i dislike blanket statements um because someone like Karen or jamie uh they're good they're good traders mm-hmm. and they have a risk tolerance that probably puts that of a lot of men to shame um, that in terms of really uh going for it but systematically um I've seen a lot of women as trading assistants around desks on Wall Street right I know a handful I've been around for 40 plus years who stuck with the trading game or moved into portfolio management right uh, it's really been a difficult ceiling for uh, for women to uh, to crack and any woman who wants there's also a very true uh, thing that Jamie avoided because she's the sole breadwinner uh, which is a lot of women want to pull back from uh, management maybe in their 30s or 40s take care of kids for a few years Mm -hmm. that tends to be just a killer career, career killer. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I I took a month off once, and I found it hard to come back. Meaning, I just yeah. felt so out of out it. out of it, out of touch. Yeah, it's this job. Either unfortunately, I mean, I love it, and most of the people in your book seem to love it too. It's great. I'm I feel grateful, and I'm really lucky that I get to do this every day. Um, but there's no part
1: timing it. No, you have to be passionate about it. You have to be you have to be willing to live it. Yeah. Uh things happen 24/7. It's like being a uh deadline journalist for one of the uh major news services on in that uh, in that regard. Only right. you have a lot more at risk. But, but. that there's just never a time when you can I mean there's a story in there I think it's Jamie Dimon, again about hauling his satellite phone up to the top of Kilimanjaro or something or he didn't do it he hired a guy to do it but that's it's
0: hard to put it put it all down yeah yeah I I agree which non-trading story did you find the most fun so I I know for me the one that I enjoyed the most was uh it was George Kellner and he talked about his family and the bow tie factory the bow tie factory which was just such like a, a great and they were hungarian and the story goes that uh, they immigrated here his father was a i think a banker in hungary and they fled the father's selling light bulbs door to door and the mother becomes the forelady lady in a bow tie factory that's right yeah. and uh they she goes to her husband and she goes we can do this right. and then 20 years later they have the biggest bow tie factory in the united
1: states He could have been the bowtie king, as he says, uh, which I found quite charming. But uh, he had no interest in that and uh, found his way into into Wall Street uh, through basically a prep school friend. Uh, But it was a mutual fund. He worked at one of the uh, early mutual fund companies Mm. uh, and just observed... Uh, what was going on on Wall Street who was making money uh, absurd, got very frustrated with s- traditional stock picking because he found personally that he could pick stocks that looked fundamentally uh, undervalued and they would sit there and mm-hmm. sit there and sit there and he couldn't get the timing right. right. Uh, I love that quote. And, that was, yeah. yeah. And uh, he Saw what some um, contemporaries were doing in the uh, risk arb business, which was boiling at in the 70s uh, and uh, and the 80s. Saw that the time frame for um, knowing whether you were right or wrong in a risk arb deal was generally a lot shorter. Yep, and. Uh,
0: yeah, he he makes the, a great point where he says, "I'm good at connecting the dots." I was a good analyst. I was getting the fundamentals right and the stock price wrong. Right. But if I get the fundamentals right and I connect the dots in risk arb, I get a pretty predictable outcome. That's right. And that's why I like the business too. It's if if you can connect the dots you're going to be okay most of the time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's go to the back half of the books. So, you, the back half is devoted to the CEOs that were involved in a lot of these deals. That's right. And uh, I was thinking, you know, you, there's was, there was sort of a core group of fund managers that you, in a way, you, know, you had to pick these guys, but you had any number of CEOs that you could have picked. That have created vast amounts of wealth and, and huge industries. So why did you pick these three? You picked Bill Stirrits who of course famous for Ralston Purina and Post and many other uh, companies. Peter Montrone of Thermo Fisher and uh, Peter McCausland of Airgas. Uh,
1: well it was partially availability. There's no, there's no getting around that. But more than that uh, we wanted to do Bill Stirrits because of uh, everything he had done at Post, and and the uh, everything he, the arb community thinks that he did to them in earlier deals, mm-hmm. um, because he's a 86 year old, uh, very uh, vibrant uh, commentator and, and an analyst of the of the business scene even to this day, and so he could give such a wide sweep of where, uh, where did you conduct that experience. Interview? Um, in New York. Okay. Yeah.
0: In his home or in his.
1: No, in, in uh, a hotel. Got it. So. Okay. Now he seems pretty involved. Still. He is still very involved in uh, Post Holdings. I mean, he's not the CEO. Right. But he has an office uh, in St. Louis, and uh, you know when he's not tending to his racing stable or. Right, big horse racing guy. Big red horse, guy. yeah, thoroughbred guy. Did, uh,
0: you know, I was speaking with um, an analyst, Tim Ramey of Pivotal, and he used to work for Davidson. And during the Herbalife saga that was happening, um, he got involved in Herbalife. Yeah, he did. And uh, Tim Ramey said, in my 35 years, he is the, the brightest investor I've ever met in my
1: life. He's an incredible investor, uh, a long-term investor, mm-hmm. which is where he runs into conflict at times with the uh, with the arb community. Um, but also, I, I don't know whether it was Bloomberg or somebody did a compilation a few years back of the CEOs in the country who've generated the uh, most asset value for their shareholders. Mm-hmm. Um, Buffett was number one Uh, John Malone I think was number two Bill Stearitz was number three right per share asset value that he's generated for his shareholders over a very long career just blows away virtually everybody right and he's done it in not in tech not in um any real high profile businesses he's done it in consumer staples I mean uh Right
0: just by I mean he was a big advocate of um not having these conglomerates of spinning companies out that they should be operating on their own and they 'll be more creative if they are
1: yeah, he has talked quite a bit about the magic that he 's seen uh, happen uh, in uh, with employee groups when they were freed from the uh, bounds of, uh, of a corporate uh, structure and allowed to uh, actually run a business and, and generate returns.
0: Now, if I was going to ask you, what do you think the difference in mentality is between the fund managers and the CEOs, what
1: would it be? Short-term and long-term. Right. I mean, there's just, there's no two ways about that. The, the risk ARBs are interested in investing in deals and generating um, current returns for their shareholders when they have it or their partners whatever it is but it's the beauty of risk ARB as a business is can be consistent um, compound long-term returns by turning over deals at a reasonable pace when the right. deal market is is happy and they're not correlated returns, which is beautiful, because the the risks are deal risk. They're not market risks. Right. But um, that, for most CEOs, is not what they're about. Now, some CEOs in this day and age are, are actually in there to make a quick turn and get out with as much uh, uh, stock options or, or uh income as they, as, as they can in a relatively short period mm-hmm. but most industrialists bent on trying to build a business as Bill Stearitz was serially in his serial businesses um, or as uh, Peter McCausland was with air gas for um, many many years or as Paul Montrone was uh, going back to his work with uh, Dingman and turning Digman's dogs into uh, nice shareholder returns over a long stretch of time by a uh, constant uh, kind of reinventing of, of the companies and uh, right. and spinning them off.
0: Right. Uh, I think that I took away a lot of things. You know, It's different when I'm reading a book just to read it, and then it's different when I'm reading it and I'm taking notes because I'm going to be talking to you. You know, sure. so I, It was like I was studying it a bit more. The takeaways that I had was, um, whenever there is a a what seems to be a bidding war between two real players, those are the absolute greatest opportunities in risk arb. Uh, that the bidding can get way out of hand. Yeah. Uh, the, the, I like the story about Ralston and Quaker Oats bidding for that. Uh, it was a pet food company. Yeah. Clayton Anderson or yeah, uh, the three daughters had it, and amazing story. And they. Bidding got absolutely nuts. And then the, the second thing is, on the flip side, and Michael Price talks about this, he calls it the, the Lion King circle of life, that so many of these, of these deals that people are clamoring for, they'll pay anything for, they go bankrupt.
1: Yes. It happens all the time, over and over and over again. Clint Carlson says along the same lines, he doesn't actually think the M&A business is that great a business that most deals, he doesn't, he can't cite any uh, studies that uh, have numbers to prove it but the more deals run into trouble than succeed Mm -hmm. ultimately but it gets buried in the uh, follow-on activities of the companies will spin-offs or subsequent mergers or 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 whatnot uh one of the uh one of the things jamie zimmerman says is she gets a particular bit of uh, joy as a researcher when she's looking at a deal and there have been previous deals and she can go back to the deal documents and see what they were promising and saying was going to happen from the original deal right? versus what really happened and now what are they saying about the current deal um, and that is particularly useful to her on the flip side of M&A deals which is restructurings and right. so many of the risk arbs get involved in both sides of that because they really are the two sides of the circle of life that right. Michael well, was talking three, about. Well, he
0: said it was the uh, equities are cheap, yeah. M&A and then distressed. And over and he goes, I want to participate in all of it. That's right. Um, okay, so I end every interview with five good questions for the for the guests. Uh, so the first question I have is a is a two-parter. Part 1, is there anyone that you asked to interview for this book that turned you down?
1: Uh, Bob Rubin. Any reason? just doesn't want to call attention to the his early career he's happy with where he is and doesn't want to talk about it
0: well the second question the second part of the question was uh, who would you consider to be your dream interview
1: (laughs) uh well bob roberman would be pretty interesting Uh, and i've never interviewed uh warren buffett and he Mm. would be fun He does a lot of, he does not a lot, but he does risk arb. He does, yes, he does risk arb. Um, He said, uh, he's the one that uh, Mario's got a a quote he always used. Give a man food, uh, he'll eat for a day. Teach a man risk arb, he'll
0: eat for a lifetime. It's a good quote. Um, Okay, question two. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot. So if you had to invest your money with one person from this book, who would it be and why?
1: Yeah, that's like picking my favorite. (laughs) I'm putting you on the spot. Uh, well, the easy answer is I have some money with with Gabelli. Um, if I had enough money, would I put Would I give Jamie Dinan some money? Would I give uh, Drew Figdor some money? Would I give John Bader some money? I'd give Jamie Zimmerman money, um, but I don't have it. I'm a writer. <laughs> 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 Got it.
0: Okay. Um, question three: uh, During the course of this book, uh, you conducted these interviews mostly in person, uh, and you must have traveled to some fairly luxurious homes and offices. Offices, basically. Okay. Well, I was. The question is whether it be a piece of artwork or perhaps a car collection or something ostentatious. Was what was the most impressive thing you just happened to see in in, the, in, in that world while making the rounds?
1: Um. Actually, most of them have very understated offices and conference rooms and things like that. But there was a, um, and some of them, like Mike Price's, looks disturbingly like mine. Papers everywhere, (laughs) files everywhere. It's just, uh, crazy, but, um... John Paulson had some fine art uh, statues. Um, and I'm going to guess one of them was a, uh, a Giacometti. I can't pronounce the name. Giacometti. Okay. Um, just kind of casually there in the conference room. Got it. I, don't know, I could live with that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Pretty cool. Um, okay, fourth question. Who, let's say you uh, work for one of these people, hypothetically, um, who would be the scariest person to work for if you, you know, messed up in a situation?
1: Mm, I wouldn't want to work for Paul Singer if I messed up. No. He absolutely does not want to lose. Yeah. He, uh, There's a quote in there. He said, yeah, no excuses. No excuses. Did you
0: get the sense that these people have like pretty abundant personal lives or is that work really the primary focus?
1: Um they do have personal lives. Uh Jamie Dinan talks about um being a woodworking nut. Do it yourself.
0: Right. He <laughs> said he loves power tools. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's, which is I guess good because he has something like five houses. Correct. So you might as well um, keep up keep them up. Uh and they have families, uh but most of them are pretty consumed by what they do. Uh, it was odd that a Martin Gruce would say that he even when he was adamantly working uh the R business mm. as a young um as a young man as a man in his forties, would go to would quit work at five o'clock basically every night and go home to his family because he thought that was an important um, thing to do. Right. I pretty much guarantee you, Paul Singer's never done that. I don't think Mario Gabelli's done that. I don't <laughs> think. <laughs> there, right. You know, there are quite a few. Right. Um, who probably haven't kept that work-life balance quite as. It's uh, tough. I have trouble doing it. Yeah.
0: Last question. So you were managing editor of Barrons for over twenty years.
1: Yeah, pretty much.
0: Uh, so the years on that were seventy-six to ninety-nine
1: uh, not managing editor in 76. That's when I joined, uh, 70, uh, 79, 80 is when I became managing editor.
0: Okay. So during that time, um, what would you say was the highlight for you? Career highlight at Barron's?
1: Oh, gee. Uh, well, that was too early for our coverage of things like Drexel. Uh, but we did, um, lot of exposés. I did one personally. uh, It's too old old for you to remember, but there was an over-the-counter small stock fraud um, on on Wall Street called First Jersey Securities. Uh, There was a guy named Bob Brennan who had TV commercials where he was jumping out of helicopters and telling people to invest in his uh, pump-and-dump deals. (laughs) Right. And uh, and we had fun exposing that. Um, Does it make you sad at all that Barron's isn't, you know,
0: what it used to be in terms of, like, a force?
1: uh, Yes. Uh, In a word. But, you know, everything changes. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, I don't think, any newspaper or magazine that's pretty much the same as it was in 1980. Right. or 1990 uh, the businesses has changed radically
0: right I just you know when I was young and I was into this from a young age and your only access really was Louis Rukeiser or Barons. that yeah. was it and now you have so much with Twitter and CABC on all the time and yeah. it's just different well again the book is called Merger Masters it's great is it out is it available
1: now It is, you can pre-order it it on uh, Columbia University Press's website or Amazon, which is what everybody will do. It's officially out November 6th, Election Day. Why do they choose (laughs) Election Day?
0: Well, it was great. And I hope in 20 years, maybe I I can get my own chapter in your next one.
1: Uh, I hope I can still write in 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again for coming. Thank you. Bye.
0: Again, my thanks to Kate Welling for coming on the show. Not only is this book full of great stories about deals gone right and wrong, it's full of incredible words of wisdom from some legendary investors. That concludes the podcast for this week. Again, I'm Mike Samers of Broom Street Capital, and I'll see you next week.